Welcome back to another Dub Feed Variety Hour. This one is actually more onto the formula of what I had initially planned for the podcast from day one. Simply put, it's just a simple rule of two movies, a dub feat, a double feature, if you will. And uh, I watch two movies and then I talk about them. That's pretty much the game plan here. So before I get into all the dub feat breakdowns, I figured I'd talk about some shows that have stuck out lately for me. A lot of the shows that I've been watching, they have all come to an end, which sucks because, you know, you wait for all these shows for half a year, if not a whole fucking year, and then it comes back for six episodes, and then that's it. Then it's gone. One of those shows would be How To with John Wilson. It's an HBO show created uh, by John Wilson, of course, and uh, Nathan Fielder. If you're familiar with any of his work, then you kind of already know what you're going to expect. Yeah, it's it's a surreal sort of documentary-esque TV show on HBO. It was great. It ended. It was sad, but it was a beautiful ending. And it was just, you know, you could tell the guy that created it, John Wilson, he he sources all of his knowledge about film from all the documentaries he's watched. It felt like a real documentary. It felt like it had his, a touch of his humor with all that in one place. So needless to say, I loved it. And I'm glad I'm, I'm sad it's gone, but I'm glad it had a great ending. So um, Reservation Dogs, it's on his last season now. I've been kind of slacking on that one. I only caught up a couple nights ago on pretty much all the episodes with the exception of the one they just dropped that one's unfortunately leaving us really soon too and it's it's fucking one of the the better shows of fx uh the bear of course the bear was great it came and went but it came with a vengeance and it was some of the most relatable brilliant tv the thanksgiving episode of course obviously i don't need to say anymore if you know that then you know enough what we do in the shadows is another one that is great, and I am severely behind. I don't think that one's going anywhere. I think that one's going to probably stick around just because it's uh, it's hilarious, and it is a spinoff from a great movie, but I guess we'll, we'll see what happens with that one. Uh, every time I watch an episode, it leaves me belly laughing. And also, um, to, to connect from the last podcast I dropped, there is a Ted Lasso Easter egg in one of the episodes. I forget the actress's name, but it's her and uh, Colin Robinson. And they're at like a, it looks like a Alcoholics Anonymous or some kind of group meet or group meeting of, of some sort. And in the middle of the uh, blackboard, it says uh, Believe, which I found hilarious, but great. But that's, anyways, back to that show. It obviously is fucking hilarious and I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon, which is, which is good to know. Uh, Rick and Morty has, of course, uh, resurfaced in me. Um, aside from all the, the controversy with Justin Roiland and all that BS, um, and I, I'm not saying BS as in uh, I'm taking any of that lightly. I'm saying BS as in, you know, the shitstorm that followed after Justin Roiland was was outed as being a piece of shit. Um, I did still manage to catch up on all the Rick and Morty that I watched. I stopped watching around season four for whatever reason. I just, I don't know, fell off of it and didn't catch back up. Notice it was on HBO Max and Hulu and all that shit. So I figured, fuck it. Let me just watch it, which I did. And holy shit, that show got super duper dark. I've been told that it's dark to the level of BoJack Horseman, which uh, from I watched, from what I watched, uh, which is another one I have to fucking finish, it's building to something even more depressing and dark, and I'm only like through part of season two, if I'm not mistaken, and I could kind of see that coming, so something to anticipate, but also might be why I haven't finished it. I might have avoided it for the, the sake of the two real that, that comes about in shows sometimes. It's not a bad thing, it's just sometimes... You ain't capable of mentally 
dealing with that on top of everything else that's going on in this godforsaken world. I guess the last thing to mention before I get right into this pod would be Oppenheimer. Holy shit, Oppenheimer was a hell of a movie. It was a very, very good biopic. Killian Murphy fucking killianed it, aka killed it. He was fucking phenomenal. Couldn't have done in a better job because he submerged himself in that character. Um, let's not forget how swiftly and easily Robert Downey Jr. steals the show on that fucking movie. Phenomenal. I saw it twice for the fact of how phenomenal it was. I bought the screenplay book also, and I have American Prometheus, which is the basis of it that inspired Nolan to even make this movie. I bought that book uh, today, which will be arriving in the mail tomorrow. It obsessed my brain. I obsessed myself with it. I ended up watching two different documentaries about it on... One was on Hulu, an MSNBC documentary, which was okay. It was a little sort of dramatic and they left out a lot of main details and then I watched the one the day after Trinity if I'm not mistaken it's on Criterion it was made in the 80s every person I've talked to about this I've pretty much told them the same thing essentially where it's uh every person that were that almost every person portrayed in Oppenheimer are the people being interviewed in this 80s documentary which is fucking cool because it's like you put the actual face to the person that was being portrayed on the big screen highly recommended if you have Criterion or if you could rent it somewhere and you were just as obsessed with Oppenheimer as I was after watching it. Oppenheimer was directed by Christopher Nolan and full circle to the dub feat that's happening today, the movies I have in my registrar that I have watched, one of them is a Christopher Nolan movie. I don't know why I sound like this, but it sounds funny. So one of the movies up today would be Insomnia. Insomnia was a rated R remake movie done by Christopher Nolan. He didn't do the writing, directing, producing, all that this time. I think he just directed it. But, I mean, from moment one, you you sense the instant uh, Nolan vibes. It's very spacious. It's very beautiful, very colorful, very expansive. Makes the world feel a lot bigger when you're watching it. And that's just from, like, the first five seconds of the shot. But let me not dive into that movie too quickly, because let me tell you the other movie that I will be talking about today. The other movie is Ascent of a Woman. That's right. Today, it's an Al Pacino dub feat. It's a dub feat of two Al Pacino movies, which I, I'm realizing every time I do an Al Pacino impression, it sounds more like uh, Detective Stewart trying to uh, solve a crime. So maybe they're one and the same. That's who, uh, that's who he is in uh, Insomnia. He's a sleep-deprived detective. All right, so I guess let's uh, dive right the fuck in. Sentiment Woman. It is a great movie. It kind of rides in the same vein of, like, Dead Poets Society and I think it was With Honors? Yeah, just like the movie With Honors. I think it was uh, an era of movie making that inspired a thousand and a half movies that were very similar to each other. So it's got that sort of uh, that overlap vibe. Al Pacino, as always, turning in phenomenal work as he always does there is no bad work even if it's a bad movie his work is always uh very very good it's him and chris o'donnell chris o'donnell from the fame of yes you betcha batman forever and batman and robin <laughs> i mean he's he was really 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 good in this movie so to compare it to batman forever and batman and robin it's it's kind of a dick but um he was baby-faced uh and super young and the main character in this movie very similar to like dead poet society you look in that movie and every person in that, you're like, holy shit, I know that guy, but he's old now. It was very much like that. I mean, it had babyface Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. It had uh, the mom from Six Feet Under. 
Francis Conroy. Very, very, very small role, but it's one of those things you're like, wait a minute, that's that's the mama from, yeah, that's her. That's definitely her. So, um, obviously, she's one of the best actresses ever, and her role is so small, she makes a, a minor connection with Al Pacino at the end, which is one of those, like, the whole running theme of the movie is him trying to sort of... Well, okay, so the whole running theme of the movie pretty much is his philosophy being a blind veteran, and it's pretty much he, he equates life to booze, women, and uh, having some sort of level of morals, if I'm not mistaken. It was very simple, but it was very much like, what else does he have left because he's lost his sight? I mean, obviously, that's coming from his perspective, not from how people are when they lose their sight, but it was clearly within his feelings because the first scene, he pours himself like a, a half cup of fucking scotch and then he sort of berates um chris o'donnell's character pretty much tries to scare him off rather than actually have him get hired and of course you know the kid who's in an ivy league uh college or a private college whatever the heck it is i I think i forget what the school is he needs money he's one of the kids that has a scholarship so he doesn't have all these parents that have bought him into the school he needs money to go back to to his family for for christmas or whatever so he takes this part-time job weekend job to watch al pacino's character and in all honesty it's a fun movie until it divulges into chaos at a couple points um oh i forgot to mention one other actor james rebhorn he's a Another familiar face. If you Google his name, you'll be like, oh, that guy. He's been in a thousand things. He unfortunately passed away in 2014. Great actor. Great everything. He played the headmaster that kind of causes a big or plays a big role in the overall plot of the movie. I mean, really, the there there's a, <laughs> there's a great scene. I, I'm trying to, to not give too much of the movie away and recommend it because I would say it's it's a good movie. I would not say it's as good as Dead Poet Society because Dead Poet Society was fucking phenomenal. Super depressing. With honors, rewatching it, I noticed it was a little more cheesy. However, very comparative to uh, Scent of a Woman. I think the, the movie, this movie's merits more land on the, the actors and the portrayal of everything. Obviously, Al Pacino killing it as a blind vet. But anyways, there's a scene where Chris O'Donnell goes to a Ferrari dealership and rents, doesn't rent it. He's, he takes a Ferrari for a test drive. He's pretty much doing it for Al Pacino because Al Pacino said, oh, that was the other of his things he, that he talked about. It's women ferraris those those are the three main pointers he mentioned never driving one and wanting to drive one so and initially you see chris o'donnell driving and you're like all right whatever this is this is cool he's giving this kid some experience it cuts to al pacino behind the wheel and you're just like wait what the fuck how is this dude driving where the fuck is he driving what the fuck and and your anxiety is like peak to the max but you also realize how much fun al pacino's having even though chris o'donnell's character is is about to shit his pants sitting next to him in the car. I guess presumably his sight is not isn't one hundred percent gone. He can see some sort of shadows and figures as there are levels to being blind. Like my grandpa, he he was blind and when he first went blind, he could make out shadows. He could see my sister by the time I was born, he couldn't see anything anymore, unfortunately. But that's kind of the stage or, or at least the because it was a um not a degenerative eye loss because he he lost his eyes due to a grenade going off. I think some of his eyesight is vaguely, vaguely, vaguely intact, so he could make up some some shapes and what have. Either way, that man should not be driving a car. He drives in what what looked like Brooklyn. It looked very much uh, similar to Once a Time in America, that infamous scene with the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. There's a couple shots that look almost like that, but it's all these side streets that are uh, brick roads. And it's just so fucking anxiety-inducing, but fucking hilarious. Of course, that's not the only scene that induces anxiety. There's a scene at the end where Al Pacino's character tells the kid that his plan is, by the end of all this, 
I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to have expensive dinner, do this, do that. And then I'm going to kill myself because that's the point I've reached in life. I'm going to have go out on a bang and enjoy myself. Uh, that flashes later to a scene where pretty much uh, Pacino's ready to blow his brains out. And it, that's the infamous, I'm in the dark here. I'm in the dark. And he's sort of staring off. He's got the gun in his hand. Pretty much he wrestles with Chris O'Donnell's character for the gun. It's the what the fuck moment in that movie, but it's also this sort of the weirdest compassionate moment between these two characters. So it is still really unique, even though he threatened to shoot Chris O'Donnell in the character and then was going to shoot himself in the whole process. So it makes for a very interesting movie. Definitely that 90s student coming of age story vibe, but it's transposed onto a man who has lived a lot of his life and then had his sight taken from him. Those two stories intersect and intertwine, and it ensues for a very interesting film. I would say I didn't I didn't love it. I definitely liked it a lot, so I'd probably go as far to give it an 8.2 dub feet, or as I would say, 8.2 toes out of 10 toes, you know, you see? Even at the end, the movie, um, you could tell that um, Al Pacino's character was tired and fed up and sort of miserable, sick of living in the, the, the misery that he had... Uh, created for himself i won't spoil how he went blind or at least because there's a few theories within the movie oh which remind me bradley whitford's in the movie too he plays his like nephew or cousin-in-law or something that sucks and <laughs> pretty much antagonizes him to the point where he almost uh pacino's character almost beats the shit out of him but i digress he realizes that having this bond with uh chris o'donnell's character it makes him sort of humble and it brings him back towards the reality to the point where like Chris O'Donnell's character almost gets expelled and of all people that defend him, Al Pacino's character sits next to him on the bench and pretty much was his character um, witness, even though it wasn't a court case, but he was the guy that vouched for him and made sure like, hey, this is this is a good kid. He's a good kid and he he's an honorable kid, unlike some of these students that Chris O'Donnell has told Al Pacino's character about. The end of the movie is very, very, very sweet because at the end he manages to sort of seem calm, seem less like he's suicidal, seem less frantic. And he's literally like, hey, so when you come back around Christmas time to see your family, why don't you stop by and, you know, have some dinner? So it's a very, you could tell he, he kind of became his, his unadopted son at the end of the movie, which was sweet. 8.2. Yeah, 8.2 out of 10. It was a pretty solid movie. Perhaps my, my uh, semi, I wouldn't say low rating, but my semi low rating as opposed to giving it like a full 10 for like Pacino's acting. I think it's just one of those movies I've seen a thousand times before. So it wasn't anything that unique. The uniqueness was kind of more based in Al Pacino's character, but phenomenal movie nonetheless. And now moving on to the other Al Pacino jam, Insomnia. What a trippy fucking movie. It really is an unraveling of the cat and mouse story with detectives, pretty much. It starts off with two detectives. One seems a little bit older than the other. The other actor, Martin Donovan. It's Martin Donovan and Al Pacino. They're the, the two main detectives. They're flying out to Alaska to help solve a, a case. But you could already tell there's some kind of weird tension going on between the two partners. Martin Donovan's character, which another familiar face, still alive, a uh, familiar face actor, if you look him up, you'll you'll notice a gazillion and a half things that you've seen him in. There's something going on between the two of them, and Martin's character seems like he's sort of just going to come clean and more or less rat Al Pacino's character out. It's very vague, but you could say, I, I think he says something like, I'm going to come clean. And from the moment that he says that, Al Pacino's character um, just literally dismisses him, 
goes to bed. So they were at like a dinner spot after a long work day. And he's like, uh, I lost my appetite. I'll see ya. Clearly, there's something going on with them. But they kind of shifted to the side. So after the two detectives sort of have a little snafu between each other, he goes to sleep. The next morning comes another character that's notably awesome in this, who just kills it, even though it's sort of a minor secondary role. Hilary Swank. She's a big fan of Pacino's character. Uh, her character's name is Detective Ellie Burr. And the first thing she's like, I've read all your cases. I've done this. I've done that. I've, And he's kind of humble. He's playing sort of modest, so he's not really saying much. But he's he's jokingly sort of staring into it, saying that you got to write this down. You got to write that down. And one of the great scenes, he like says something like that as she's driving. And she's sort of like motions to go into her pocket to get a, a pen and paper. And then she realizes he's just fucking with her. But essentially, to note how much Al Pacino and his partner were fighting their characters, the next morning, he sort of cold shoulders his partner and cold shoulders uh, Detective Ellie Bird, too. You could tell he meant business. Unfortunately, the next scene after that is them hunting for the potential killer uh, at large. And as they hunt for the killer at large, they're in a very densely fogged area with all these weird traps and weird hidden places. It literally looks like one of those old... Call of Duty Cold War maps where you, you know, you look like you're in Thailand or or something or Vietnam. So there's a lot of weird, like, you can't see where the killer is. He shoots one of the, the Alaskan detectives. Al Pacino's wandering around and uh, he's calling out to somebody. He's like, hey, stop. He shoots the guy and then he runs up to the guy after. Turns out he shot his fucking partner in the heart. Kills his partner. And as the partner, because of how they just left off the previous day, the partner's like barely clinging to life and he's pretty much saying, you did it on purpose, and you shot me on purpose. Al Pacino's like, what the fuck? So, needless to say, this made for a crazy plot point and furthering the whole plot of the entire movie, making things go quite awry and uh, steers completely into the title of the movie, Insomnia. From that point on, I don't think you see Pacino sleep and you see him attempt to. You see him do everything in his power to block light out and, and you know, not fester in his mind but of course he couldn't help but do that because he just shot his fucking partner he didn't do it on purpose obviously but that shit ate him up as if he did and he kept having visions of it the more he did not sleep every day it would progress to another day of him not sleeping the more weird flashbacks the more weird sounds he'd hear the the portrayal of insomnia which i've i've dealt with in various forms never to the six day extent of him not sleeping but to that level holy shit Talk about a representation of, of a, a correct representation of lack of sleep. There's a scene where he's in the um, he's in the station at the the police precinct, and he's just sort of like his eyes are sort of fluttery. He's sort of putting them down. He's sort of like he's sort of got his eyes kind of going back and forth. And then it cuts to like you know a phone ringing, and it cuts to a loud noise outside, and it cuts to coffee brewer making cuts to the the lights buzzing, and then it cuts back to him just like in a fog. And I'm like. That's how you fucking feel when you've slept zero hours the night before and you still have to be productive in society. Talk about a hell of a representation of actual insomnia. Of course, after Al Pacino's character shoots his uh, partner, this killer that they were chasing who was at the scene of the fogginess, he saw him do that. And he starts questioning him. Why'd you shoot your partner? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Because he, of course, knows the detective, knows that they're there. He's playing that sort of weird cat and mouse on the call, on the phone, bullshit. And in that process, he starts to realize, oh, shit, I have leverage over Al Pacino's character. So let's see how I could use that to my advantage. And of course, you factor in Al Pacino's level of sleepiness and aloofness just because of how exhausted he is. You almost think that it's going to be 
exactly like how you think he's going to they're going to work together and the crime is going to disappear they're going to pin it on somebody else which is partially how the plot starts to go but Al Pacino being the cop that he is and some of the lines he says I think he says something in the lines of the reason he's a detective is because within like the first five seconds of meeting somebody he could know if they're bad and he's used that to the advantage and disadvantage of breaking the law in order to bend the law he said he he, he knew some guy that kidnapped a kid and murdered him and killed him but from day one he knew he was the bad guy so he had to go and plant evidence in order for this guy to go away because he knew the law wasn't working fast enough for him but it realized it it helped him realize that was the day he corrupted himself and never brought back the staying on the, the straight path of morality within his job the whole leverage back and forth between by the way, the the, ser- the killer is Robin Williams. Spoilers. I mean, you realize that pretty quickly. And especially if since this movie's been out for so long, I think some of the DVD covers has Al Pacino, some fog, and Robin Williams all in one portrait. But anyways, the back and forth between Al Pacino and uh, Robin Williams is very much like that interrogation, not interrogation scene, but the scene in The Dark Knight, which I will probably be watching later tonight because I've rewatched Batman Begins, but I digress. The scene where the Joker has been arrested, which was his plan all along, and he's sitting there with one of the detectives that's supposed to, you know, be the hardened one that won't buy into the bullshit of Joker's shit talk. Of course, he holds his own for a piece of time, and then Joker says some lines of, I killed seven of your friends. Do you want to know... How many of them were cowards? And then from there, the guy loses his shit and goes off the fucking rail. So that sort of notion and that feel happens between Al Pacino and Robin Williams a few times in the movie because they they both have leverage over each other. They're both trying to manipulate each other for the gain of their own outcome. Essentially, Pacino's character, he doesn't want to get caught accidentally shooting his partner. He, they, the blame ends up going towards Robin Williams. Robin Williams wants to use that because he knows what happened. He wants to use that as leverage to get away from the murderer of the the girl that he murdered at the beginning of the movie. So it's that back and forth happening. Of course, uh, it could just it just divulges to your classic cat and mouse catch up movie, which may be why I I did not give it a or I would not give it a ten out of ten. I was close to giving it a ten out of ten. And then when the ending kind of happens, it's very much like, all right, this is your your cat and mouse uh, standard solution ending for for that type of movie. I would say that the the movie sort of gives off a a machinist vibe at times. There are there are moments where you know just because his uh, Pacino's lack of sleep, there's a delirium that that falls with that, and that's also really well represented in, represented represented in the machinist as well. I think as I mentioned before, it was not his first time planting evidence so i guess the morality part of the film played the the morality arc played a big prominent point for the overall movie obviously the end is very poignant in that sort of being moral morally just and not so the end of the movie spoilers turn away now if you want to i'd say fast forward 30 seconds al pacino is is breathing his last last breath he's been shot in the chest as he shot robin williams character with the shotgun who ki- which kills him uh, Hillary Swank eventually figures out that he planted, he sort of planted evidence to get away with the the murder of his uh, partner, just so it didn't give him more of a shitstorm, which was stupid in the first place. He should have just came clean about it. But given the internal affairs investigations, he was too paranoid anyway. But Hillary Swank's character fin- uh, figures it out because she's no dummy, and she calls him out for it. She literally pulls a gun on him, and then of course gets distracted by the fact that they have to take down Robin Williams. The last scene is as he's breathing his last breath, she she has the real casing bullet belonging to his gun, 
and she takes it out and she goes, no, 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 don't worry about it. Uh, I'll throw it out. It doesn't matter. I get why you did it. And he, he grabs it. He goes, no, 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 just don't go the way I did. Be better. And then he breathes his last breath. She takes the shell casing, puts it back in the bag and puts it back in her pocket. At least there's redemption in it, even though it leads to him sort of looking semi-crooked. But at least there's peace for, for all the other crimes and shit that he's manipulated for the sake of a win. The rating that I would give this movie, I don't know, I'd say probably about the same. I definitely liked it a little bit more than A Scent of a Woman, but there's a very similar sort of overlap of the feeling that I got from both of them. I would say maybe an 8.5 out of 10 toes. I definitely am glad I finally watched it because I would say I've probably seen 99% of all Christopher Nolan movies with the exception of Tenet. I've only seen an hour of that and I did not like what I saw because I did not understand what I saw. I also did see Dunkirk and I felt similarly I did not like it. But Insomnia, greater than both of them. Definitely a good film. It definitely felt like a film that wasn't 100% his because, you know, when you watch like The Dark Knight or, or a movie that he like, you know, him and his brother wrote and then they produced and they directed, there's a different feel to it. It feels more like it's within a bubble. And this one felt a little bigger than that just because there was a lot more parts conveyed in it. On top of the fact of um, it being a remake too. So I, I definitely have to check out the original version of this movie because it must have been good if it inspired Christopher Nolan to do the remake. So there you have it, folks. 8.5 for Insomnia, 8.2 for Sensible Woman. Great movies. Off the list, now on to more movies. I guess the game plan soon to be, if I can get my shit together, maybe I'll do one of these once a week. Some shorter, some longer. I'm going to start pulling off two movies off my DVD shelf. Some still unopened because I'm a fucking idiot like that. But I'll, I'll bring two movies together. I'll do just like what I did today. Dissect them, break them down. And y'all let me know what you think. If y'all agree, drop a comment, leave a shoot a DM on the Dubfeet Instagram page. If you have suggestions for two movies that I should watch, whether I've watched them already or or just you want me to compare them, let me know. Slide into the DM, slide into the comments. As always, it's been fun, it's been real. Deuces. <laughs> <laughs>